Miss Me? Beyond the Plate is back with season two. The journey is about the compilation of great stories. And at the end of the day, it can make you a very empowered woman. And that's what we want. We want more empowered women in this world. Hey everyone, this is Cappy and you're listening to Beyond the Plate, a podcast where I sit down in person with the world's culinary elite to explore their journey into the industry and the social impact they have made in their community. Every episode, we share inspiring stories of what it means to be in today's hospitality industry. Welcome to our first full-length episode of Season 2. We recorded most of the season live from the 17th Annual Food Network and Cooking Channel South Beach Wine and Food Festival in Miami, Florida, from the Lowe's Miami Beach Hotel. This festival is a benefit for the Chaplin School of Hospitality and Tourism Management at Florida International University. Thank you all for having us. Season 2 of Beyond the Plate is made possible with the help of our friends at Martin's Famous Potato Rolls. A little housekeeping, Martins was founded in the heart of Pennsylvania Dutch country in 1955. Their products have no artificial colors or sweeteners and use non-GMO sourced ingredients. Martins potato rolls are the number one branded hamburger bun in America. And as I like to say, they can make almost any burger taste better. I actually did come across Martins recently when I was in Austin, Texas, eating at a great newish barbecue truck called Leroy and Lewis. And I saw that loaf of Martins bread in the window and I knew I was in good hands. But here's what I love about Martins. Their mission encompasses more than just baking great bread and buns and rolls. They believe in giving back to their community and beyond. Through volunteering time and donating resources, they support hundreds of charitable organizations such as food banks, after-school programs, disaster relief, and others that provide sustenance and comfort to people in need both close to their baking facilities and abroad. To learn more about Martins, please visit their website at potatorolls.com. So Martins, we thank you. Back to it. For this episode, we sat with Giada De Laurentiis. We did go live on Facebook, so feel free to check out the Beyond the Plate Facebook page for the full interview. What can I say about Giada that you all don't know? Let me rattle a few things off. She is an Emmy Award-winning television personality, a New York Times bestselling author, a Today Show correspondent, a Food Network star judge, and she's a restaurateur. She was born in Rome to a huge Italian family. She went to UCLA, then she went to Le Cordon Bleu in Paris. After that, she worked at the Ritz-Carlton Fine Dining Room, I believe back in the LA area. She also worked at Wolfgang Puck Spago in Beverly Hills back in its heyday under pastry chef Sherry Yard. She then started her own successful catering company called GDL Foods. She was doing some food styling, I believe, simultaneously as catering and got noticed through an article that was published in Food & Wine magazine. Someone from Food Network happened to see that. You'll hear more about this story later, but this was around 2002. Since then, she's had plenty of shows on Food Network plenty of cookbooks. She has a series of adventure books for young readers. She has another cookbook coming out. Her restaurant in Las Vegas is her namesake restaurant, Giada. It's inside the Cromwell Hotel. This February, she opened her second restaurant called Pronto in Caesar's Palace. It's more of a fast casual restaurant. She is currently working on her third restaurant called GDL Italian, which will be in Baltimore. So she's going to the other coast. She has a new lifestyle website called Giadzi, G-I-A-D-Z-Y, where she showcases recipes, videos, and lifestyle and travel tips. 
And last but certainly not least, her philanthropic work. She works with Learning Gardens in Los Angeles. She is an ambassador for Stand Up to Cancer. She does work with the Melanoma Research Alliance, which you'll hear more about in this interview. And she's involved in Alex's Lemonade Stand, which raises money and awareness of childhood cancer causes. I'm going to stop right here, but please enjoy this conversation as we go beyond the plate with Giada De Laurentiis. We're at the South Beach Wine and Food Festival. Giada and I met at the South Beach Wine and Food Festival the first year. You were, you were like fresh, fresh I meat. I was fresh meat. Fresh from Food Network. Do you remember? I think it was the first like live demo you did. Yes. Yeah, so it was... Lee Schrager told me last night how many years ago. So the festival's been going for 17 years. Yeah. I've been doing it for about, I think he said, 15 of the 17 years. I think at least. Yeah. But no, not you, at least. That's how many. Is that not it? more than that, yes. Wait, um, but you... I was I was covering for Alton Brown. That's how I got the call. Lee Schrager called me, said Alton has a whole, like he has two demos, he has this and that. He can't make it. Um, and we thought that you would be the perfect substitute. I thought... I'm the perfect substitute for Alton Brown? I don't think so. So it was my very first time. I, was, I had just started on Food Network, and I couldn't have been more petrified, honestly. I, I remember. Oh, yeah. Wait, okay. you cut yourself. Yes. I remember I getting a call over the radio saying, does anyone have a Band-Aid? I think Chiara Taylorentis just cut herself. I um, When I were, get nervous, I think we all do, we, just, we start shaking, and I realize that the demos here are fantastic, but the problem is, is that water doesn't always boil and the stove doesn't always work. And sometimes you're just doing a song and dance. You can't really cook because there's nothing to cook. And so I think I just wasn't used to that. I just, it was the beginning days of my career. And I was horrified that I have to spend 30 minutes basically doing a song and dance. I'm not an entertainer in that way. And I think that in that process, I was thinking about like, what do I say? What do I say? And uh, I just sliced my finger. Or you've had a glass of like Prosecco before. No, 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 Cappy. I did not drink before my demos. I'm a good girl. I do not do that. Maybe now I do, but in those days, definitely not. Um, so I just want to put things into place here. Food Network and Cooking Channel, South Beach Wine and Food Festival. We're at. This is the 17th festival. This festival has raised more than $26 million for the Chaplin School of Hospitality Management at Florida International University. There's more than 90 events over a few days, more than 350 chefs, winemakers, spirits producers, celebrities, and culinary personalities. My question for you, why is this festival so special to you? I think that you know, I am, I'm one of those people that when someone gives me my first shot, I feel like I'm ah, indebted to them forever. That's right? a good, that's because a good Because I feel trait. like in, in this, in this life, yeah. you always need that one person who believes in you, that gives you that first shot, that first step into whether you know it or not, the rest of your life. And I feel like, to be honest, Lee Schrager did that. He, he invited me to do something that I don't know that anybody would have invited me to have done for wow. For many years after that. And I think that having that faith in me and put in making me face my fears because talking to a large crowd, I mean, if anybody knows anything about what, why chefs really become chefs, at least in the old days, <laughs> is because we're very shy people. We're introverts. We're and in we, the kitchen. Yeah. We like to be in the kitchen and we like to show our creativity and our gifts through our food, but we don't want to talk to anybody. We never want to be around anybody, really. We just want to be with the food. And so um, he made me face some fears that, you know, I think made me better at what I do for a living and, um, and helped me to be 
more confident. And I feel like for that reason and the fact that you can't beat Miami in February because it's Trust freezing me, cold yeah. even in Los Angeles right now. And hanging out with all your buddies for the weekend, it's like, you know, fraternity sorority party all weekend. For those reasons and more, I think you can't beat it That makes it, it special. Yeah. Wait, so speaking of buddies that are down here. Oh, yes. There are many of them. So I know Bobby Flay's a good friend and he's being honored tomorrow night here at the tribute dinner. Yes. Which is awesome. Um, and you're a part of that. My question for you is, what was your first impression of Bobby Flay oh, when you boy. met him? And how has that changed today? <laughs> Whatever I say is not going <laughs> to... Okay. Um, I would say my first impression... Well, let's see. I'm trying to remember where I first met him. Because I think what people don't realize is that... Well, first of all, I live in Los Angeles. I have lived in Los Angeles the whole time. And so... Because I live and shoot in Los Angeles, I wasn't part of the New York sort of chef crowd, right? And so I didn't hang out with Bobby Flay or Rachel or Emeril or any of those people because I just wasn't there. I was shooting in Los Angeles on my own. So although it looked like I was part of this big family, I didn't really hang out with that big family. Got it. And so I think that the first time I actually met him was Food Network had done a, a live cooking demonstration in Philadelphia, and I was invited as like the Wait, lower. The, 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 the great big food yes, show? Yes, <laughs> yes. And that's like 12 years ago. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe it's more. Maybe it's. It was like 2004. 2004. So I yeah. had just started in 2003. So as you can imagine, this was my first sort of live demo. And they said, you're going to be paired up with Bobby Flay. And I thought, oh my God. Part of me was like horrified and part of me, or terrified more than horrified. Part of me was terrified, but the other part of me was relieved because I felt like unlike Miami, I wouldn't have to do a show and dance all by myself. Got but it. I had somebody else that could kind of take, you know, kind of, I could lean on who had been doing this for a long time. So we chat for a second and he's like, you know what you're doing? And I thought, okay. And I thought, how do I know when to talk? Like, how do I know when you're going to let me talk and when I'm supposed to let you talk? I didn't, because I hadn't done it before and I had never worked with him. He's like, don't worry, it'll just come naturally. So meanwhile, I was pretty much mute the most of the time. And I just stood there and he's like, she's just my smiling sous chef. And that's pretty much all I did. And I just remember he was lovely. He actually was, I was terrified, but he was actually lovely. And I, wa I remember walking into a crowd, it was tons of people and him grabbing my hand and basically pulling me through and looking at me and go, don't worry, it's going to be fine because I have like this thing where I don't like massive crowds of people and they were all over us. And, um, it was good. Yeah. It was actually good. I think over the years, you know, we've had our moments where, for instance, when I teamed up with him on Iron Chef against Rachel yeah. and Mario and we lost. Wait, what was your, that was like for Rachel, she always talks about how that was one of the most stressful days like of her life. It was awful. It was, pro yes, it, for both of us. I, for Mario and Bobby, I think they'd been doing it for so long. For them, they didn't care. For Rachel and I, we were terrified. Ter and they pitted us basically against each other, oh. right? Because it was really Rachel and Jada against each other. Um, but we lost. And he thought it was funny. He didn't think it was any big deal that we lost. I did not talk to him for eight months. Eight months. I did not, nothing. Because Silence. You really? Yes, because I was, I thought, you know, I took this very seriously. It was a very big show, especially at that time. Yeah. And I've, I've cooked, I've gone to culinary school, I worked on my own dish all by myself, and I felt like he just sort of half-assed it. Like he didn't really care, it was just, it was just TV. Yeah. I took it very seriously. I think Rachel took it very seriously. 
And I was really disappointed. And I think that more than the loss, which I was really upset about, I was upset that he didn't seem to care. He didn't see, it didn't seem to phase him that we lost. He didn't say, hey, I'm sorry we lost yeah. or, hey, you know, we'll do it again. I, you know, nothing. He's just like, and he walked away. And I thought, you're a jerk. And I'm never talk. I never want to be around you again. Now, of course, we're best buddies. And so we what, hang out, have, but what have you come to learn and, and appreciate about Bobby as a person? I think that, um, you know, Bobby is one of those people that if you are his friend, he has your back forever. And he will stand up for you and he will, he's one of those guys you can call in a pinch and he will get you out of it. He's, he's, he's special in that sense. He also thinks he knows it all as well. <laughs> so that's the other side of Bobby. Um, and I think that I've learned that he takes some things like his friendships and his family very seriously, but he takes other things like TV a little less seriously. And you know, I think he just remembers saying to me, it's just a show, John. Right. It really doesn't mean anything. None of this means anything. Don't take it so seriously. Don't bother reading the, just don't read anything about yourself. Don't take any of this so seriously. It really, good advice. None of this yeah. matters. All that matters is that you're proud of yourself and the, the work you put out there. And I think for him, his restaurants are sort of that. Right. So you grew up in a Hollywood family and then bop around to catering, school, restaurants, things like that. At what age did you know you wanted to be a chef? So my family, yes, is in the movie business. My grandfather made over 600 movies in 60 years. But before he did that, his, and Shane's going to laugh at me for telling the same story a hundred <laughs> times, but it makes sense. His family, it. his family had a pasta factory uh, in Naples before World War II. And he and his siblings would go and sell their, mom, um, their mom's pasta and their sauces. So in Naples, the reason that uh, pasta was so popular, or was such a big business in Naples, is because of where it sits um, and where the, um, the winds and the ocean air land on the top of the buildings, right? So the way that it does that, it keeps the pasta, so they used to hang them on the, in, on the roofs, and it would dry it, but keep it tender at the same time. So that's why some of the best pasta in the world, handmade pasta, is made there. That's amazing. Yes. My grandfather loved pasta making. He loved food in general, right? So he opened these little, they're like what Dean DeLuca, really what Italy is today. Um, but he opened one in New York City, much smaller, and one in Beverly Hills. And what he did, which was sort of unique, is he didn't just hire employees that lived in those cities. He brought all his friends he grew up with, the pizzaiolos, the bread makers, the everybody. And he transferred them and their families. Oh half gosh. of them to New York and half of them to Los Angeles. So you grew up at these... Yes, and so I was 12 and when it first opened, and I would go after school. And I think for me, not only the aromas, but honestly, just watching everybody walking in to buy stuff and watching the interaction with these Neapolitan people who didn't speak a lick of English. And just the just the pure awe on people's faces when they walked in. Because now we're used to that kind of stuff, right? But in those days, it didn't exist. So it was that unique experience that I thought, I want to do something like, I want to amaze people with our culture and our food the way that my grandfather is doing right now. Did you ever think working in a kitchen would make you a celebrity? I know that's not why you did it per se, but are you surprised sometimes where your life is now? Oh my gosh, yes. Um, no, when, when I got into it, I don't know, almost 20 years ago, I would have to say, or maybe more than 20 years ago, we didn't have 
Food Network. We didn't have food television the way you know it today. Yes, there were PBS shows. Yes. Um, yes, there was Julia Chai, but they're like one in a million. And let's be honest, working in the kitchen, it's a blue collar job. It is not like you're not making, you're not retiring on that money. For sure. Um, and so, and it's a lot of hard work manual labor of lifting really heavy pots and burning yourself and like you're sweating and it's just it is not a glamorous life so I was shy I loved to cook and I was a girl I was a female in a very you know sort of overpowering Italian family and really there weren't any uh, expectations of me other Mm. than maybe I'd get married and have some kids or maybe I'd work on a movie but other than that, there were no expectations because I was a girl. And so I love to cook and I thought, okay, so I'm going to do this. Really and truly, I wanted to be a pastry chef and I wanted to eventually be like a French pastry chef and yeah. So yeah, I was reading about this because when I went to culinary school, every job I had out of culinary school was in pastry kitchens. Yeah. Well, first of all, it's not as... It's not as tough as a regular, a regular I, savory for me, kitchen. It's like I, I would be like dripping sweat on the line of a restaurant oh, like yeah. the first five minutes. I'm like, I yeah, pastries is can't way take more laid back. <laughs> it is way more laid back. And plus, I love sweets. So any thought of like being around sugar and desserts all day, I was like, this is heaven. This yeah. is what I want to do. I didn't really get to do that for very long. I did mostly on the line work because that's how we all start because pastries only has like three employees in it. (laughs) So, and those three employees never leave. So it's really hard. You have to go through the whole savory kitchen first before they ever even think about it, moving you in there. So, um, I didn't do it for very long, but I would say that that's the reason I got into it. I thought that maybe there were different incarnations of it. I think because I went to school in Paris, you have these delusions of grandeur that you're going to someday be an Alain Ducasse or Joël Rubichon, which of course I, I kind of knew was never going to happen, <laughs> but I thought it was a kind of a glamorous thought anyway. A girl can dream. Yeah. And then after working in kitchens, I thought, okay, maybe I'll just start a catering company. And then I met a woman who was doing uh, food styling on the West Coast, and I started assisting her. And that is how... I got uh, Food & Wine magazine. Oh, right. There was a feature in Food & Wine. That's how everything started. And then Food Network saw that. Yeah. Did you resist TV at first? Yes. Bob Tushman called me for a year straight. Because I kept thinking, first of all, nobody knew who Food Network was. So when I would tell my family, they're like, it's probably some creep. And I've never heard of it. Some weird, there's all these strange, creepy cable companies coming up now. You have to be really careful. So I thought it was was creepy. Uh, It took me about... He called for about six to eight months, religiously. And then um, I put a little tape together with my brother. And he edited it because he was in the movie business with my aunt and my grandfather. So he had the ability to have a camera and he knew how to edit and do all that. And we put this like three-minute pilot together of me making bechamel, which is not even easy. I remember Bob saw it. He goes, could you make me peanut butter and jelly toast instead or peanut butter and jelly sandwich instead? And I was like... I don't know, because I don't even eat peanut butter and jelly sandwich, but I'll make my version. So I made a Nutella panino or something, it, which was, yeah, because he said it was too complicated. And I did that, and that became the pilot for Everyday Italian. So the answer is no. That was a long-winded answer, but the answer is no. I could never have imagined it, nor did I ever plan it. But is it true you were not comfortable in front of the camera? Yes. Yes. Really? If I was, I always say to people, I worked on several movies with my family. If I was comfortable in front of the camera, I would have been an actress or done something else a long time ago. What makes you nervous? People. Really? Yes. Yes. I'm shy. 
I know it doesn't seem like it now because being on television for so long, I've had to fight those sort of fears, but yeah, I'm shy. I don't like to be around a lot of people. I don't. It's not my instinct. Like if someone says to me, let's go to this party. Ah, it's going to take a lot to convince me really? to go to a party. Yes, because I like intimate settings. I just like intimate, close friends. I don't like to be in... F- I, I just don't. It's an insecurity. I guess it's my insecurity. Sure. That's okay. Yeah. But is it true? I, I saw that Food Network received mail asking why they hired a model or actress instead of a real chef. Yeah. I've been fighting that. I don't know. I mean, maybe in the last five years, maybe that stopped. But that was going on forever. How did that make you feel? Insecure. <laughs> so when you're insecure and things you're like, like that happen, it makes it worse. Blue. It doesn't matter. Yeah, well, they thought it, they just, they were like, well, basically this is what they thought. Yeah, she, she's too skinny, she's too pretty, and she comes from a famous movie family. <laughs> like, of course. Right. It's so obvious. So I think I spent most of my life proving to everybody every day that I wasn't, I, I, that you had to look beyond all of the stereotypes. But I still fight them today. I mean, I did an event last night. I can guarantee you that half the people in that line just wanted to see whether, is she really that little? Is she really <laughs> that nice? Is she really that pretty? It's, it's constant. I get it every day, all the time. Because God forbid that someone like me could know anything about cooking or like to eat. They want to like, can she really cook or something like yeah, that? Yeah, I think actors, they're supposed to be a certain size or they're pretending to be somebody else. So they're, everybody's waiting for me to, like, just, like, is she really who she's pretending to be on, t- on camera? Okay, so you went to Le Cordon Bleu. You wanted to be a pastry chef. You worked at Spago after I did. Like, so I worked OG at Spago. Spago. Yeah. That was amazing. Yeah. Is there so, anything you like learn or took with you from Spago that you still like use to this day? Well, at Spago, I did both uh, the hotline and pastries. Uh-huh. So I was able to, because it's a rest, it was a restaurant, unlike I worked at a lot of hotels where everything's like sort of uh, separated. Yeah. But in a restaurant, you get paid like two bucks, right? Two fifty. So they're just, they're like, they move you to wherever they need help. They right. don't care if it's the dishwasher. They're like, just move you around because they have that flexibility. And so I was able to be on the line at one point in the evening and then I'd be in the pastry kitchen the next part of the evening. So the amount of knowledge that I actually gained was phenomenal. And also I think I worked with Sherry Yard, who was Did quite phenomenal. Yes. She's amazing. She was so great. I learned how to stretch. How up. long? She was a pastry chef there, Forever. right? Forever. For she year. just left, like, I don't know, maybe four years ago. I mean, to start her own tw- gig. 20 years or more? Yeah. Yeah. She, she was, I've, I learned so much from her. The basics of, of all sorts of things, of poaching liquids to add more flavor to cakes, to uh, making streusel from scratch, to never setting out any cookies that weren't warmed, which I still do today at Jada Vegas. That's a good tip. Yeah. We do not send any cookies out that are not warm. And that is something I learned from Sherry. I mean, one of our producers, Shant over there, I know he, he'll raise his hand for a warm chocolate chip cookie any yeah, day. Right. And so, <laughs> and I had marks from working for Sherry all over my arms because the salamanders were so high that when I went to try to get the plate out, I would always, always inevitably like touch. And so I would go home and I remember my mom was like, what the hell are you, what are you doing? And I'm like, mom, these are battle wounds. Yeah, these are battle right. wounds. I'm going to show everybody. See how serious I am. Yeah. So, yeah. So since Spago, you've worked, obviously, plenty of other places, but you've semi-recently opened your own namesake 
restaurant in Las Vegas yes. and another one opened or coming? Like, <laughs> yes. I feel like there's multiple so, more. Yes, so I opened Jada Vegas. It's, it'll, it'll be four years in June. That one opened about um, four years ago, right? Yeah. On the Strip. And then two weeks ago, I opened a quick serve at Caesar's Palace, which to me, I feel like I hit the lottery by going to Caesar's Palace because great. Jada is at the Cromwell, which is a small boutique hotel. It is owned by Caesar's, and we are in a amazing location because we are right next to the Flamingo across the street from Caesars, diagonally across the street from the Bellagio. So it's phenomenal. My restaurant has windows that open up onto the strip and you can see the Bellagio fountains go off. So, I mean, I have 188 rooms in that hotel. I have 275 seats in my restaurant. So do the math and figure that I got to pull off the strip because I can't stay alive. Um, So opening at Caesars Palace was so amazing because they have 5,500 rooms. And That's I'm like at the town. bottom of the, of the escalators of the convention center. So I'm right there. It's a quick serve. So people can come and go and get their stuff. You must like pump food out of there. Yes. And I have a wine bar and I have a retail space, which I've never had before either. So within all of that, I thought, oh, this is, it's an introduction to my brand because obviously Jada is a fine dining restaurant. Not everybody can afford it. So this is an introduction at an introductory price. And um, I've never done a quick serve. So I thought that'd be fun. And also, to be honest... Caesar's Palace has no females, no female oh. chefs on their roster. Interesting. They're all the boys. Is that, did you want fine dining? No. <laughs> I didn't. But that's, that's what we what needed. The, yeah, space that's, called that's for. What the, well, the space had, didn't exist. Oh. The space, so it was the old Bur- uh, Barbary Coast. So it was a two-floor parking garage. Cars had been parked Barbary there since Coast. the day it was built. Yes. I think I did. I played uh, like a $2 blackjack hand there once just because there. it was the a $2. Place. Yeah. Yes, it was That's the hilarious. cheapest place in town. Yeah. So it was a two-floor parking garage. So we had to gut it and build a restaurant. Now, I don't know. You can talk to all of these guys that, you're gonna, that you interview, all these chefs, and you ask them how many of them have built a space from scratch in Las Vegas. No. Probably, probably none. nobody. Yeah. Probably well, maybe someone like Bobby's been there for 14, 15 years because maybe that space wasn't there. But most everybody, no. I would say the answer is no. So the to actually get to build from scratch your own restaurant. The anticipation so, of that alone. So yes. So the money alone, they weren't <laughs> going for a quick serve. They were going for a fine dining where Got they can make their money back pretty quickly. Got it. So that's why it was a fine dining. Do you like Vegas? I, I, mean, I will tell you, it took me a minute. I mean, I used to spend time in Vegas when I was young. I was I it's also Angeles. different. Like, my wife hates Vegas because she's usually there for work. I love Vegas because I'm never there for work. So I'm like, let's go to Vegas. She's like, ugh, no. I love Vegas. Vegas has been really good to me. And I have to say, you don't want to spend too much time there. But I think a weekend in Vegas can be amazing. We have There's some of the best food in the world in Vegas, some of the greatest shows in the world. And I got to tell you, they're shopping like there's nowhere else in this country. For sure. It's like shopping in Hong Kong. Yeah. That's what it's like. It's that amazing. There's such unique pieces. So for a woman, I can't imagine your wife saying that. I don't know. I think she was like, had not the best experiences there with work. Maybe your wife should come to my restaurant and we'll, we'll wine and dine her and she can have a, a great memory. I'm in. And then at the same time, Cappy, you can have fun. Done. I'm in. Okay. You have a chef de cuisine, I take it, or something like that at Giada. Or how, how does I a dish do. get created? Do you, are, you, are you working closely with them so on that? So I have, it's, it's myself and... And this is a question, I don't ask this because you're... Uh, I mean, you're an extremely busy person. You do TV and appearances and all this stuff. But I ask this to every chef because if you have multiple restaurants, not who's in charge, but how does the dish get created? Well, in all fairness, 
anybody, any chef who has multiple restaurants, especially not in their city where they normally live, they're probably not going to be there. I mean, they're going to be there, but they're not going to be there that often. They're not there every day. We were just chatting with Josh Capon, and he's here in Miami, but he has six places in New York. Exactly. So someone else has to run the show, no question. And I have a great team that runs the show. So what happens is we create the menu, and then they like to tweak and make specials, but we serve nothing unless I've tasted it. Really? Yeah. So they'll work on stuff, but you go there and you're like... And luckily, Las Vegas is close enough that I can go for the day. Yeah. And we can do a tasting and we can be done with it. Um, I have a, a young lady who works with me also very closely, and she sometimes does the trips instead of me, depending. Got it. So we kind of go back and forth. Um, and that happened with the quick serve as well. And I opened a third one in about a month and a half in Baltimore. Other coast. <laughs> yes. The comp- it's sort of... I'm going to try the East Coast, but I'm going to try the East Coast in a smaller like, town. Yeah. Yes. Smart. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> in a smaller, in a sort of a smaller way, just to try it out. Wait, so restaurants in general, I think, can be, as chefs will tell you, an unforgiving business. What has opening this restaurant taught you? Well, I will tell you, Cappy, that I feel like I didn't get any street cred or respect until I opened Vegas. Hmm. And I really didn't get it until Vegas was super successful. And when Vegas became super successful, because Italian restaurants cap at a certain, like, uh, they may only can make so much money, right? Sure. It's steakhouses that really make the big bucks. But when my little Italian restaurant, which is not so little, but started killing it, everybody started paying attention. And also because there really weren't very many uh, female branded chef restaurants on the strip. I think how it's long, me and the Border Grill girls. How long were you, like, fighting the fight to... I mean, a restaurant well, in general took, takes time to get going. It took a year and a half going. to build the place. Almost two years to build it. And then a, at least a solid year after we opened. And at that point, I got a lot of street cred. And all of a sudden, people started to pay attention and realize, oh, she's not just some pretty girl on television. Maybe she really can. Yeah. Maybe she really does have some business uh, cred. And maybe she can really cook. And maybe she really can make a career out of this. Was you it know? hard to anticipate or read reviews? I don't know the review scene in Vegas. Yeah, there but. was. So the New York Times went and reviewed my restaurant, <sighs> which I thought was absurd. I never cried quite so hard. Really? Mm-hmm. Yep. Mr. And I remember Wells? who I went to see. It was Mr. Wells, yes. And I, I remember I was in the Hamptons. I called Bobby and I was in tears. And we had coffee together. And he's like, I told you, you can't. It doesn't matter if it's a good review or a bad review. You can't read them. And I warned you before you opened it that you had to be tough. You He's have good at to that. He's tough. good at letting that stuff roll off. Yes, but how do you how but do you But he said not... it takes time. It takes time. It takes years and years. He's been doing it for 40 years or how, something. How, after how long you were open, did they come into, did they do the review? Three months. I hate that. Three months. So, well, not even three months. It must have been two, because we opened in June and this happened in like late August. No less. Two and a half months, which I thought was... It was a way to just discredit me, which is typical. You know, it's, it's going back to what I had said earlier, that yeah. I look a certain way. And so it was just their way of basically saying to me, huh, yeah, you opened it, but I'm going to make sure you stay right down here. That and they just... did a good job because I felt like shit. And I spent the next, like, month in Vegas with my, with my chef just like, you have to do this and you have to do it this way. and you have Because we were making fresh pasta. And, you know, in Vegas, unlike other places, when you make desserts and fresh pasta, you have to remember it's very dry there. So you have to tweak the recipes all the time for the humidity levels. Interesting. Yeah. You're in the so desert, yeah. You're in the desert, so it's different. Just like we took that recipe and gave it to the people in Baltimore. And they're like, 
it's so wet. Huh. Like, yeah, because Baltimore is by the water. So you have to take out some of the moisture from the recipe. So it's people don't realize how much we have to tweak, you know. And um, so I, I spent so much time with them just like. Yeah. Is Baltimore open? No. It opens uh, middle of April. Very cool. Your family has their Hollywood success story. Um, I want to talk about your childhood. Awesome. What do you remember <laughs> most? What? Let's talk about childhood. What do you remember most about your childhood? What I remember most about my childhood, probably food. Lots of freaking food. I was food, also pretty chunky as a child. Food, DDL, food DDL food show. show. Yeah. Mm. And uh, so my, uh, my place. You were chunky as a child? Yeah. So my place in Baltimore is called GDL Italian. <laughs> I wanted to call it GDL food show, but I decided to call it GDL Italian. Um, yes, I was chunky as a kid. We all were. We're, you know. I still am. We eat. We, we just, we liked our, I mean, my grandfather used to make me a plate of fresh ricotta cheese. He would put it on, on a, I don't know, I don't even think it was an appetizer plate. It was like not a giant dinner plate like we have here. So just think well, a little bit smaller than that. He'd take the fresh ricotta, he would take the spoon and just kind of level it out, right? And then on top of that, he'd take sugar, just white, plain white sugar, and he'd sort of sift it all over the top. So there was about this thick a crust of sugar, right? It would seep into the ricotta. The ricotta would, would like sort of um, uh, absorb it, you know? And then on top of that, he'd do a big thick layer of cocoa powder. And then on top of that, he'd take a block of bittersweet chocolate and he would shave it on top. I you can't just spoon, tell you. Spoons of it? Spoon. I would eat the whole this, thing. I feel like, like it's such that. an Italian So then you wonder why thing. I'm so, why I was so chunky because <laughs> I was eating that. You were that bound was my to snack. love sweets or like not want to go near sweets. He loved, my grandfather and I had this special bond because I loved sugar as much as he loved sugar and he would make me these things and I would eat them where all the other grandchildren would be like, no. We, in season one, we, we chatted with Massimo Batura yeah. and he was talking about his childhood like thing he remembers with food and it was, he would boil milk, he would take the skin off but yeah. save it yeah. and then he would put in like spoons of sugar. Yeah. Spoons of cocoa. Chocolate? Yeah, that's how we make our hot and, cocoa. And breadcrumb. Oh, I don't know. I don't. I never put bread. He would grate breadcrumb until a spoon stood up in it, and then he would mix oh. the skin back in. And it was like that sounds disgusting. Yeah. First of all, <laughs> but secondly, I think it's more of like a instead of like making oatmeal right in milk, yeah. it's sort of that that version of oatmeal. It's not oats, but it's bread that sucks up milk, right? And then it's sweet, so it's like a it's like a cereal. It's like yeah. a warm cereal. Yeah, right. I, that's what I said to him. I was like, it's like porridge. But why put? Yeah, but why put in the skin? I don't know. If, I don't know. You didn't ask him that. No. He's a character. He I, is. I interviewed him last year. Yeah. I did a dinner with him. He's, he was a trip. He's a uh, he's at a whole different level, like a whole different plane. That's crazy. He lives in a different world than we do. Can you describe the De Laurentiis family? Like the family dinner. It's old school De Laurentiis family dinner. Uh, but take, like, like I want to hear, like, being in that room. Like, uh, I want to touch upon. You want upon, me to create a picture. Like, you every sense. Okay. Like, what am I smelling? Let's start with, just bring me into the room. What does okay. it look like? The room is very large. It's a long table with lots of chairs. It is, it's very elegant. So my oh. family was very elegant. Okay. Um, other than when we ate in the kitchen. If we ate in the dining room, which we usually ate in the dining room, and there's usually a kid's table that's separate from the adult table. Yeah. But it is, it is very glamorous in there. And my grandfather always sat at the uh, head of the table. He would say a couple of things um, before lunch. It's lunch, by the way. 
it's lunch. Sunday lunch. Yes. Yeah, it's like lunch at two. This is amazing. Because you spent the whole morning cooking it. Then you ate for like three hours. So by five o'clock, you're pretty much done. And everybody naps. And then if you want, you eat something little, but you eat it at like nine o'clock. So that's how Europeans eat. We don't eat, especially on the weekends, we eat lunch very late and we we don't really eat a huge dinner on the weekends as much as we eat smaller things. Got it. Okay. So it's very glamorous. It's all set up. So think China. Think the full place setting, multiple plates. Uh, my grand, we, we had, pe- you know, lovely ladies from the Philippines in their outfits and their little, like, wow. who served. My grandfather would make the pizza in the morning. He'd get up. So he'd make the dough. Then we would all make pizzas, and then the ladies would cut it up and put it on silver platters. So it's, it's just sort of that juxtaposition of, like, we're all in our PJs making pizzas and making the dough, but then we all get dressed up and all that stuff gets put on a silver platter and kind of brought out like in Downton Abbey. Yeah. That kind of envision that that's pretty much what my life was like. It was that we're totally casual and rustic to we're completely glamorous. Is there like music playing or like, no, there's no music. There's no music playing. There's a lot of talking and yelling. Lots of talking and yelling, lots of pouring of wine, lots of clinking of glasses. But really, when if it got too loud, we would my anybody in my family would take a fork and just start banging it on the table so we could get some like get attention of somebody if you wanted to talk. And a lot of times when they spoke, they would stand up so that everybody could hear. So you can see you can see why I was shy and intimidated and an introvert. Was, yeah, because. I, I didn't have that voice. Yeah. You know what I mean? And we were always at the kids' table, so we're always like... Um, Smells? Aromas would probably be... Yes, because the kitchen was there, but the doors were never open to the kitchen. So it was in the days of, like, you don't see what happens in the kitchen. It's not an open, pla- an open room the way we have today where the kitchen and the living room and the dining room are all in one. Mm. Everything is segmented, like, off. And so the doors would sort of flip open and close with everybody coming in. But you like could I'm on a smell set. it. Yeah, it's like a set, pretty much. But it was life, <laughs> real life. Um, but the, so the aromas would come through every time the door would open. So you could, if you sat by the door, which usually the kids' table is, it's the ugliest spot in the room, right? Because we're kids. So we would be right by the, by the doors, opening and closing. So we could smell it more than anybody else could smell it. And a lot of baked pastas, lots. So you could smell the cheeses. Um, a lot of grilled meats. Um, we would grill indoors more than outdoors, funny enough. And um, lots of roasted oily potatoes, which were my favorite. I know Yum. it sounds not good, but they're divine. No, I, it sounds um, delicious to Lots me. of, always start with pizza. Always, always, always. My grandfather never started a meal without pizza. Huh. He's Neapolitan. The birth of the Neapolitan pizza, he always started with pizza. Always moved on to a pasta. He loved baked pastas. I love baked pastas. So, um, And then a meat, lamb or beef. Sometimes also some sauteed shrimp. Roasted potatoes always, broccolini with uh, red be- with um, with red pepper flakes always, and then six or seven desserts that would get laid right in the middle of the table, and then you'd watch everybody sort of like go like at it, dive into, dive in, it. yeah, <sighs> lots of wine and lots of talking. I want to, I want to, I want to have a lunch like that. It's um, it's you know how in Down Abbey everybody's quiet and reserved. Yeah, no, it's like mayhem, but it's glamorous like that. That's awesome. Thank you for painting that picture. You know, no one's ever actually asked me to paint that picture before. I love it. So this was very, yeah. Good. It was fun. So when you decided to go to school for cooking, what was your family's reaction? (laughs) Not good. I think, I think honestly, my grandfather thought it was ridiculous. And no one wanted to really pay for it. (laughs) And I couldn't afford it. So the only person that like basically backed me up was my Aunt Raffi. 
Oh, really? Yeah. Because I think for her, she never had any children. And her whole life was her work, making movies. And I think that she saw in me that drive, like she had as a young girl, to sort of go against what our society tells us to do, to get married and have a family. And she saw that I had a drive to do something more. Hmm. And so she, I think for her, it was like, I think Jada should try to do this. I think that, because I was the first to go to college as well, which is unique because nobody in my family went to college. And they certainly wouldn't want to spend the money on a woman going to college. What a freaking waste that would be, right? But it's old school and it's not anybody's fault. And I don't like see it as something detrimental. I think it's funny because you can't change, you just can't change the perception of of what, you know, the older generations believe, especially coming from Italy. Right. So... My grandfather thought it was ridiculous, and he thought my aunt was ridiculous for supporting me. My mom was just like, oh, God, why can't you just do what everybody else does? Why does it have to be different? And um, I went, and I left my family, which I had never done before. Oh. I lost like 25 pounds. Yep. I was scared shitless. I cried for a month straight. Yep, for a shy person. Yes, but I lived in a bubble of my, my family was everything. I mean, I had friends, but... I had my family. We were a big family. So my grandfather used to say, you don't need friends. You have your family. Like, we are your friends. We are your clan. We are everything to you. And so it was a very mm, rude awakening, a growing up process. Did you stay in Paris after school or did you just come right back? I stayed in Paris for about a year and a half. No, I worked a little bit after. I really wanted to go to hotel school in Switzerland after that. Oh, really? But my family was like, eh, you're getting cut off. <laughs> so um, I loved Paris by the end. The first few months were, I wanted to come home. I called my mom every day. Really? And I said, I want to come home. And she's like, can't come home. You made a choice. Did they come and visit you? Nope. My mom didn't even take me out there. Did you go solo? I sure did. your aunt? No, my aunt couldn't come. She was on a movie. She, my aunt, my aunt had me go on the weekends, not all the time, but every once in a while. She was shooting in um, Slovakia at mm. the time. My aunt likes to shoot in all you know, these places. So she would get a driver to come get me and drive me from Paris to Slovakia because you can do that in yeah. Europe. And I would go spend a night with her and I'd feel better and then I'd go back to school. She'd ship me back to school. So I would do that to see my family, but otherwise, no. No, I saw nobody. No, that, it was pretty... Yeah, you'll grow up quick with yeah, that. Yeah, and you have to understand... And I know this sounds weird, but I never did an ounce of laundry growing up for myself. And all of a sudden, I had everything to do. And not only that, I'd go to the laundromat. I was just going to say. So I would lug on Sundays my bags of my sheets, my towels, my clothes, because my clothes stunk. Because when you cook all day, I had to iron my chef. I'd never ironed anything in my life, I'd never washed anything. I had to iron my chef coats in culinary school. Wasn't fun. I had to shave in culinary. I got sent home from culinary school for not I, shaving. Yeah. Well, see, luckily I'm a female, so I didn't have to worry about that. That's right. Uh, but, <laughs> but you can imagine what what a shock to your world it was. And yeah. my mom kept saying, "You picked it. Yeah. You picked it. Now you're just gonna have to deal with it." And I was like, "So uh, I did it, though. I did it." And I was like, "Okay, I'm gonna do it." And it made me super independent. It made me a lot more secure until I got on television. Um, but it did. It made me grow up. And I, I realized 
and thank God, because nowadays I spend so much time on tour, like just traveling alone, that if I couldn't handle it, I don't think I'd be able to have this career. So I would say that culinary school prepped me for all that. Yeah, that's amazing. Okay, so we're going to start winding down a little bit. I want to talk about social impact and giving back, because that's a main part of the focus for Beyond the Plate. And I know you're a giving person. You do? I do. <laughs> So in season one of Beyond the Plate, we, we, we heard all different types of stories from Massimo Batoris to the Alice Waters to the Eric Repairs and Scott Conant and all across the board and the different ways people give back. Um, and that's really what I love about this community of people that we chat with is, is how they give back um, and why and why we called it Beyond the Plate. So I believe what inspired you was your brother. Can you tell me about your brother? So I'm the eldest of four, and my brother was two years younger than me. So I have, it goes me, my brother that was two years younger than me, my sister who was 11 months apart. My brother and sister were 11 months apart. And then we have a younger brother. Uh, <clears throat> so my brother got sick about 12, 13 years ago. Uh, pretty sort of out of the blue, he had melanoma. So he was on a movie set with my aunt in Slovakia and he was producing a movie and he was in the office and some lady said to him, oh my God, your shirt is completely bloody. What is going on? So he went and he had this mole checked and he thought he'd cut it because they don't have showers there. They have bathtubs. So you have to take a bath. Um, so he thought maybe cut it on the bath. Like, you know, when you lean up against the, yeah. the spout and he, the doctor there was like, it does not look good. And it continued to bleed and he couldn't stop it from bleeding. So they, my aunt took him to, um, to another doctor in Vienna. And the dat doctor was like, you have melanoma and you have stage nine melanoma, which means you have like a 10% chance of surviving. How old was he at this point? 29. So... My aunt flew him back to the States because she was like, what the fuck? Maybe this guy's like a looney tune. So she, we flew him back to the States and he went to uh, a lot of doctors. Um, in Los Angeles, St. John's has a pretty great melanoma department. And they said, yeah, we got to cut it out. We got to cut your lymph nodes out. We got to, um, you got to take, you got to have to go through chemo. It was this whole thing that happened within like a three week period. And he survived for less than a year. And he died like right after his 30th birthday. And he didn't actually die from that melanoma because you don't actually die from that. You die from um, the cancer spreading to your organs. So he actually died from liver failure. So that, I mean, that had to have been a life-changing moment. Yeah, it was uh, probably the hardest time I've ever been through. Yeah. It was awful. It was beyond awful. I think because none of us really accepted it and none of us thought, you know, it was the time of, um, uh, who's the, the cyclist? Yeah. Lance Armstrong. Lance had just gone through like uh, the cancer that like you never survive. Right. And he fought it and he survived. So I think in my mind, and that was so fresh at the time and we all believed that my brother was going to get through it just like Lance Armstrong because he was so young. What we didn't realize is that the younger you are, the worse it is because your, um, your cells reproduce faster. That's why you're young. The older you get, your cells reproduce slower. So the cancer moves into your, moves throughout your body slower. So you live longer. So that's why you die so fast. And I've learned a lot since, but 
My goal has always been to warn people about melanoma. My brother did get burned on his back. We all did as children. I mean, we ran around with oil on our bodies. Like my mom used to lay out with and put oil on her body and then take a mirror and reflect it on the sun to get a tan. I mean, I think a lot of people did that. We don't, God forbid we do that anymore, but I think in a long time ago, people did. And we got burned. And my brother's burn, unfortunately, was cancerous. And he didn't know it. And I think in his 20s, he, boys don't really go to the doctor. So had we seen the mole? Yes, we had seen it from time to time. And I remember my mom had told him repeatedly to go see the doctor. But you can't make a 20-year-old do anything. Right. And so I think for me, awareness is everything. And I think I talk about it in as many places as I can. So Right. So you, you've done work with, I mean... Uh, we'll get into the some melanoma of these other foundation, melanoma yeah. research alliance and uh-huh. stand up to cancer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I did that. A, a PSA for stand up for stand up to cancer. I think that um, you can't change people's perception of the sun, but you can educate them and you can let them know that that um, it kills you. It's hard to believe, but it actually can kill you. And you never know if it's you or somebody else. It's not just fair people, people with fair skin. My brother did not have fair skin. It can happen to anybody. It's just, it's playing Russian roulette. You just don't know when that bullet's going to get you. And it's, the sun is okay in small increments. I think dermatologists say 20 minutes a day is okay Hmm. in the sun without protection. Anything more than that, skin damage, potentially melanoma. Wow. So also kitchen community LA. Yes. So the other thing in Alice Waters, yeah, Alice, well, so if we want to talk about cancer first, Alex's lemonade, Suzanne Goyne is a good friend of mine and she's a big chef in Los Angeles and she is great. And she came to me years ago and she told me it's the story about Alex, who was a little girl, 10 years old, who got lymphoma and decided that she was going to beat cancer by uh, putting up a lemonade stand in her neighborhood, which was on the East coast. It was outside of Philadelphia. She raised a million dollars before she died. And her parents decided that they were going to continue this foundation. And they spread it around the country. Mark Vetri actually runs the one in Philly. And um, I think Jonathan Waxman does the one in New York. Yeah. And There's a newish. Chicago has a new one, now too. Now Chicago has Tony one. Tony Montuano yep. and some others. And so Suzanne, when she asked me, and I'm on the board of that, she, I said, of course. I mean, I have a child, too. And it's a pretty spectacular foundation. And I think we've done a lot to help to raise money and awareness for children. I feel children. like they've raised, like, over $100 million, Like, some... Yes huge and yes. awesome number. Yes. So it's been, it's been spectacular. I mean, how you give back this all has a, a very personal. Well, I meaning. think for me, I like to give back in a way that makes sense for me. So cancer is obviously something that has impacted my life. Um, and I have a child. And so that sort of meant something and it was with food. So it, to me, it made the story made sense. Um, so, and the melanoma foundation, obviously because of my brother. And then I have a little charity that I do, um, that I sort of work and put money into to build school gardens, similar to Alice Waters. Although I do it in, um, in Compton, in Los Angeles, in my neighborhood, like not in my neighborhood, but in my backyard in a way. Um, and I build gardens for elementary school and middle schools in Compton. That's great. Yeah. In the sense of like. You know, everybody tells me, well, you know, why can't we change the food that these kids eat? Why can't we just put, like, good food in their cafeteria? I'm like, because they won't eat it. It won't matter. It doesn't matter. What does matter is that 
all of that land that's there being unused, that we build a garden for them so they can see things growing. Because if they see it every day, the change, every single day when they go to school, they'll see a strawberry grow, they'll see a tomato grow, they'll see a snap pea grow. And guess what's going to happen one day? They're going to go there and they're going to pick it off the vine and they're going to look at it and be like, I know what this is. This yeah. is a strawberry. And it doesn't come from the grocery store. It actually grows. And they, they put it in their mouth and their lives change. And that is the first step to changing the way that these children eat and getting them engaged in it. And so in doing that, I've, we've grown like tons of zucchini and all stuff. So I would give them recipes. And at the end, they would make um, zucchini bread with all these, all this zucchini, and they would sell it at the farmers. They would set up a farmer's market on Sundays at their awesome. school and sell it. That empowerment changes people's lives. You can't just change it by giving them greens all the time, making them put it on their plate. It has to start Teach differently. Where it comes from. Yeah, it starts at, at the root of it. Yeah. And, and I think that's what Alice get, has done so well yeah, with, too. Yeah, anytime you get them involved, and it, it kind of, like you're saying, it also, like, from a humanity perspective, it boosts their self-esteem in a yes, way. Yes, like, and I'm all about boosting self-esteem. <laughs> God knows that that's the only way I've gotten to where I am. But yes, that's, that's what it is. It's all about empowerment. What I do every day with cooking and what Rachel does and what we all do is empower people. Yeah. We do it from the kitchen, but we can do it many different ways. Yeah. So right now, women are, they're making bold moves and it's a time of empowering women. You're a mom yes. to your daughter, yes. as you spoke about. Yes. What is your message to your daughter and other young women watching or listening? I think you just got to go for your dreams and don't let anybody tell you otherwise. And I know that it's been said a million times and it's cliche, but it's true because if I had listened to all of the people in my ear, I would never be here. I'd have been too scared. Someone would have talked me out of it. And guess what? They're always going to try to talk you out of it. Always. So you just got to keep going no matter how hard it is because the payoff on the other end is pretty spectacular, you know, and you've got to just believe in yourself no matter what everybody says. You're never, it's never going to be a perfect life and in, you will stumble across, you will make mistakes. Mistakes are okay. We grow from those mistakes. It makes us who we are. It humbles, humbleizes us. And remember, it, it makes a great story in the end. And we are all about great stories. That's what this whole life is about. The journey is about all of these, the compilation of great stories. And at the end of the day, it can make you a very empowered woman. And that's what we want. We, more, we want more empowered women in this world. Awesome. Speed round. Okay, let's do it. Number Have one. Okay. Your daughter's favorite dish you make for her. Ravioli. As a newish restaurant owner, name a smell in the kitchen you love. Cookies baking. Name a smell in the kitchen you hate. Garlic. <laughs> I hate the smell of garlic. Really? Yes, I don't like garlic. I hate <laughs> it. I hate it. What pisses you off in the kitchen? Oh, dirty fingers. What makes you happy in the kitchen? Uh, my chef's tasting as they go along. That is a happy sight. Yes, because then I know there's going to be some good food coming out All on those right. plates. All right. This is an easy wrap up. What's next for GDL? Well, GDL Italian is next in Baltimore, and I have a new cookbook coming out, an Italy cookbook, right before I open the restaurant, <laughs> the end of March. And currently, I'm shooting Food Network Star, so we will have an, yet another season of that. And I hope to shoot more shows in Italy in this coming year. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you. And if Thank I can pack more in, I will, Cappy. Do it. I'm just kidding. <laughs> awesome. Great Thank job. Thank you. Quote. 
You just got to go for your dreams and don't let anybody tell you otherwise. I know it's been said a million times and it's cliche, but it's true. Because if I had listened to all the people in my ear, I would never be here. Thanks again to Giada De Laurentiis. Find more on her at giadadelaurentis.com. Please join us next week when Beyond the Plate presents Just the Plate, a short segment where chefs describe a recipe sharing insider tips on what makes this specific dish meaningful to them. Find me and keep up to date with this podcast across all social media platforms at On Cappy's Plate or go to beyondtheplatepodcast.com. Beyond the Plate is on Twitter at BT Plate Podcast and Facebook. Thank you to our partner, IL8 by Flavor Gallery, who supplies all of our signature hats and t-shirts to our Beyond the Plate guests. Some of that merchandise may be coming to the IL8 by Flavor Gallery website soon. This episode was produced by myself, along with Ian Cohen, Joel Yeaton, and Sean Petrosian. Thank you all around. Our music has been composed by Goldford. As always, special shout out to my wife, Katie. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on your listening site of choice. Thank you all for listening to Beyond the Plate. I'm Cappy, and remember, there are never too many cooks in the kitchen. 